Hi, my name is Michael, and this is Social Distancing. Episode 22. Learning how to be progressive. This is my friend Michael. Michael is a recent graduate of the University of Arkansas with a degree in journalism. He is a part of the school's five-year program, which allows students to receive both a bachelor's and a master's degree in just a five-year span. Michael is from Flower Mound, Texas, which is a suburb north of Dallas. Our conversation starts with Black Lives Matters and the shooting of Michael Brown. In 2014, I was living in St. Louis, and I was 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away from where Michael Brown was shot and killed. Do you remember what your experiences were? Do you remember hearing about that for the first time and kind of what happened where you were in that moment? Yeah. So right around, I think what's odd is Ferguson is the first time I remember being in high school. Again, I'm going to show my age. Um, I remember being in high school and feeling like I was watching the news, as stupid as that sounds. Like, I remember being kind of like keeping up with it. Specifically, I remember very vividly sitting at the dinner table with my family when uh, the verdict came out, um, the not the not guilty verdict. I remember that. And my family like kind of sat down. I forget what news network we watched, but I just remember like being like, well, shoot, that's how that went and like sitting down and and watching the news. So I pretty well remember that one. And I very well remember the controversy that we're going through today as far as Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. I um, remember that pretty vividly. A lot of my extended family would identify themselves pretty conservatively. So they're pretty uh, staunch Republicans. So I like, I remember that being a topic of conversation a lot, but yeah, that's kind of the first current event. I remember like actually paying attention to and actually adhering to. What was your high school like? Did you have diversity at all? No. Uh, so I actually, it's funny. I just had a conversation with this uh, about a, about this with a friend of mine the other day. So the school that I went to was if I, if you had to, this, these statistics are just coming from my head. Um, if you had to ask me what the racial makeup of our school was, I would say anywhere between 85 and 90% white. The second highest racial um, or ethnic group in our high school was South Asian. And we had a lot of Indian students and Pakistani students at our school. Interesting. Yeah. And so I would say probably after that, non-South Asian, Asian. And then finally, I would say African-Americans. There were very few African-Americans in my school. So I was having a conversation with this uh, with a friend of mine who her name is Ashley, and she was a Black student at our school. And so she was talking to me and uh, on her social media, she was talking about her experiences as being the only Black person in kind of our friend group and, and growing up Black in predominantly white school. And so we would talk about how like naive we were about everything. We thought we were so progressive. We thought we knew what was up and we watched the news and kept up with everything. And then like looking back, it's like we were just like living in this bubble like we thought we knew everything about current events and this is what's going to solve everything and obviously we were super naive about everything there's a lot of um, systemic issues that in our you know i think a lot of people think racism equals being vocal about hating minority groups 
And we were like, well, we don't do that. So we're super cool. Like we're progressive. We know what's up. And like, that's just not the case. There were a lot of issues that happened at my school, not to bring up, not to dredge up some bad memories. I remember vividly when we made USA Today national news for our colors were navy, silver, white, uh, and we were the Jags. And so one of our slogans was Jag Power. And at a basketball game, uh, white power got put up, (laughs) the two signs got put next to each other. And there was a USA Today article about that. I vividly remember seeing that article. (laughs) What happened in the stands, not out on the court, is the big talk in Flower Mound. During the varsity game against Plano East Friday night, students held up signs that read white power. And now the Flower Mound superintendent is addressing the issue. And Heather, I spoke to quite a few Flower Mound parents, none of whom wanted to really go on camera except one who you'll see in our story coming up, but many of them are calling this just a misunderstanding or an untimely picture that maybe shows what it, what wasn't implied, but it is those racial implications that has now garnered national news thanks to social media. So you talked about being progressive. What, what in your mind did progressiveness looked like keeping up with the debates uh being politically aware not necessarily action but saying like hey i know that this is happening yeah i took one sociology class and i thought i understood like (laughs) systemic issues basically no and like all my friends were uh huge like bernie supporters in 2016 which was the year i graduated and so you know just all these it was again no that's a good way of putting it there was almost no action but we just thought we knew what was going on. Now there's been a little bit more action, especially there have been protests even in Flower Mound. Obviously, there are nothing to the scale of like major metroplexes even compared to like Dallas, but people are getting together. And like they're mostly high school students because their parents are pretty conservative, but like they're getting together and they're putting a little protest outside of like a Kroger, like little things like that. So now I think there's a little bit more action when it comes to social issues, but definitely not when I was in high school. Michael's father works for a nonprofit organization, and his mother works in an elementary school helping students whose first language is not English. Michael's mom came to America as a teenager from Argentina. You talked about your your mother being an immigrant from Argentina. Mm-hmm. What kind of conversations are being had around conservative politics and and that sort of thing in your household, and how do you think they differ from all... Um, What's the politically correct way of saying that? (laughs) If your mother and father were both born and raised in America, how would that Mm -hmm. look different? That's a good question. So my dad is pretty open that there was a period of his time where he kind of based off the people that he was, you know, were in his friend group and, and kind of the society that he was brought up in. He would pretty openly say that he would identify as conservative and he's he's kind of strayed from that now where he would like, I, I throw this word around a lot, but he would identify himself as progressive. My mom, her and her parents, especially, I think my mom's parents, my grandparents who love the, you know, how everyone has different names for their grandparents. My grandparents from Argentina wanted to be called Abuela and Abuelo. So that's like what I've grown up calling them. They are like the coolest people I know. I think they have spoken up for minority groups, specifically Hispanic minority groups since 2016. And so I think that it's really given as far as 
how things would have been different if my parents were both born and raised in the United States. I don't, I don't know how it'd be different, but I assume that it would kind of, it might be a little bit more one-sided. I think that it would have been more easy, easier for uh, my family to just kind of be a flat surface that if you agree with them, then things fly. And if you don't, then they'll, I don't even know how to describe it, but that they'll kind of lash out or that, you know, I think they would just be a single party family. I think that by having a mother who was born in another country, I think the conversations are just that different. My mom, up until she was probably a teenager, and my grandparents and their whole family, when they lived in Argentina, lived under a dictatorship. Like they live under, like they would know people not like any close friends of theirs, but no people who would speak out against the Argentine government and then they would just disappear. And so like just stories like that, when you compare that to if that wasn't in my family, I think politics would be such a different thing. When I think of someone who works for a Christian nonprofit in Metro Dallas-Fort Worth, I imagine him to be a fairly... Ted Cruz Republican kind of person. And I imagine his family to be a little more like that. And I think that there is a unique element that's added to it when you bring in the fact that he is married to an immigrant. And I imagine his outlook on the sort of policies that traditional conservative Republicans are putting into place kind of rub differently against that. Does that make sense? No, yeah, that totally makes sense. I definitely think that that is a huge factor in the way that my dad is today. Um, again, not to speak on his behalf, I, I, I don't know. I don't know his mind. He's a very complicated man. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> well, talk about how that's been. How has that experience changed you? Obviously, he may have grown up one way or a different way, but you can speak to your own person. How has that affected? the way that you look at these sort of policies mm-hmm. because because there tends to be this sort of stereotype of people coming to America from Latinx countries that that they just want to come and steal steal our jobs and they want to come and you know not pay taxes or not be real citizens and that's certainly not the case in your family right yeah no i think it's really interesting the way that my family has always um, approached those sorts of situations. After the president was inaugurated, obviously one of the first policies that he kind of pursued was really cracking down on illegal immigrants. And I remember my mom, so the school that she teaches at, I think I mentioned, is predominantly Hispanic. Specifically, a lot of them are from Mexico. And quite a few of them would probably qualify as undocumented. I remember she told me that right around the election, the principal had to go on the morning announcements at an elementary school and tell these kids to not worry, like tell them that it's going to be okay. And I, that has just stuck with me that like, these are, you know, kids, they're elementary school age, they're between five and 11. And they're having to have their principal tell them like, Hey, it's going to be okay based on the current political situation. And so that, and then my grandparents, the church that they go to is predominantly uh, Hispanic. And I remember they kind of took it upon themselves that knowing that a few members of their congregation would identify as undocumented, they kind of were like, hey, let's chat real quick about like what you need to do, what your future is going to look like, you know, 
when someone comes knocking on the door and you don't know who it is, what to do, like things like that. And so my family has kind of taken a progressive standpoint on that, which I think is really, I think you said it very well, that it kind of flies in the face of what your stereotype is as far as when you think of, you know, wealthier white people from a town like Flower Mound, which is, you know, just an affluent neighborhood outside of Dallas, like a Metroplex. It kind of does fly in the face of that. And I think that that has really shaped the way I view things. favorite authors is James Baldwin, who's a very famous African-American author, kind of concurrent with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, and, and spoke a lot about race relations in the United States at that period of time. And he grew up Christian, and even at one point wanted to be a pastor. And he kind of, you know, right at that same age when everyone else kind of becomes disillusioned with the things they grew up with, he kind of became disillusioned with Christianity and struggled with the reconciliation on the idea that Christianity was a white religion, for the most part, that was forced upon uh, enslaved African Americans, who it was almost, it was, uh, it wasn't almost, it was used as a justification for slavery, in the literal sense that slavery was in the Bible, so it had to be okay. And then in kind of the figurative sense, that, well, don't worry, heaven will be great for you. Like you work hard as a slave these days, but you'll, it'll be all fine and dandy once you're in heaven with, with God and everything will be perfect. And so he really struggled with that, that idea. And I think that really speaks to kind of this wanting to just shove everything under a rug in Christianity that, that um, like things, things will be, this world is flawed, but things will be better in heaven. So it's okay. And no, I think that things need to be addressed in this world. Like sure, things will be better in heaven, but that doesn't mean that you don't advocate for justice and advocate for truth these days. It makes me think of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who obviously a much different situation, but was willing to die and did die in the name of stopping Hitler. And I think that evangelical Christians love to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but kind of forget that part of the story. I think that Christians have a role to play in this, and I think that it kind of begins with acknowledging that privilege. So the thing that I remember the most from you, when you and I first met and our first class together, you and another classmate were talking about your love and obsession of Beyonce. And throughout the semester, you made it very clear that you are a pop culture aficionado. And I once considered myself that, but have found in my old age, it's hard to keep up with pop culture. And I have kind of just come to a point where... I have a few cornerstones of people who know good pop culture, and I depend on them to to keep up with it. One of them being my nephew, who is a freshman in college. And so he is just entering the the zenith of his pop culture awareness, mm-hmm. which is wonderful to see him rise. <laughs> um, you seem to be there. You are as as well-versed in pop culture as just about anybody I know. 
I have another friend who is my age, but has decided to hone in on uh, film for his pop culture knowledge. And so, and I, I say that I don't know pop culture. I know, I know enough to keep up with stuff. I think you you know pop culture pretty well. So I imagine that living in a pandemic where you're forced to stay at home and watch TV and whatever is playing all the time must have been a pretty good couple months for you. Yeah. God, you would think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I, um, yeah, I mean, today, let's see, what did I do? I woke up, I read. What are you reading? Uh, right now I'm reading I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, rereading that, her investigation into the Golden State Killer, because there's an HBO documentary coming out about it. So I decided to reread it. <laughs> but um, yesterday's a better example that I worked, or at least did my imitation of working. So I finished that probably around two o'clock or so yesterday. I read for about an hour, and then I watched Shakira's HBO concert. Um, good stuff. Then I watched, um, I had started Bridesmaids last, earlier this week. And so I said, you know, I'll finish that one while I was waiting for a friend of mine to stop by. So I finished that. And then my friend came over and he's in my quarantine circle. And <laughs> he, and so he had never seen the movie Hush, a uh, horror movie on Netflix. We watched that. And then my roommate had had a, a rough day with work and stuff. And so he came back and I was like, well, do you want to watch a movie or something? And he's like, yeah. And so we watched Thor Ragnarok, which that was my first time seeing that movie. But so if you're keeping track, that was four movies I watched yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you could say that I'm doing well in this stay at home pandemic. I don't think I've watched four movies through the pandemic. It's, it was, it, that was a dark day for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be really interesting to look at um, dating post COVID nineteen. I, I say that as a, as a single male. I think that there's going to be ladies. He's yeah, single. I know, right? <laughs> If you've listened to all of this and you think he's the one. If you like someone who spends his Fridays watching four movies in a row, (laughs) I I am the one for you. (laughs) (laughs) I was talking with someone the other day and he was talking about how he went on a a mid-COVID-19 date, if you will, that they went to Wilson Park and walked around for 30 minutes. And I was like, okay, interesting, like interesting first date. I don't know. But I think it'll be really funny to see how quickly people are willing to settle down, I suppose, right after COVID-19. I think because, you know, again, saying this is a single male, I think that there's this idea that like, well, I'm by myself right now and I don't like it. So I need to find someone. I need to find someone fast. So I think relationships are going to be really interesting. I think it's been interesting, too, to see relationships that were you know, like humming along a kind of status quo prior to COVID-19 and then quarantine happened. And I think a lot of couples had to define their relationships a lot faster (laughs) than they had planned on. Oh yeah. And I know people on social media that I either grew up with or went to college with uh, or friends with who, you know, they had been dating this person for four or five months prior. And then they realized they had to, 
you know, stay in their house for the next three months and they're just like, I guess we should move in together, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that dynamic has has changed dating pretty substantially as well. Yeah. And just because we can't stop talking about um, Christians, I think that <laughs> that has been a really interesting thing. I've seen a lot of people I knew who they're like, well, I guess if we're going to like shack up together, we have to get married then. And so people are just like getting married, like going to a courthouse and getting their marriage license just because they're like, well, I guess we have to live together. And if we're going to live together, it might as well not be in sin. (laughs) (laughs) They're getting married just because they wanted to be together all the time, which I think is fascinating. Not that that's, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. but Thank you, Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, exactly. Glad you picked up on that one. Michael, thanks so much. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. If you have an extra minute, it would really mean a lot to me if you shared this podcast with your friends on social media. My hope with this show is that I can bring just a little bit of joy and inspiration to the world. And if you've experienced that yourself, I hope you'll let people know. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new episode up on Wednesday.